Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was first broadcast in 2015. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Woomera blasts off and the virtue of being astronomically wrong. But first up, here's the news. by an asteroid. Last Monday, Earth was visited by asteroid 2004 BL86 at a distance of 1.2 million kilometers. Scientists working with NASA's 70-meter deep space network at Goldstone, California, have released the radar images they made during the flyby. The radar images show, at a resolution of 4 meters per pixel, that the asteroid has its very own moon. The main asteroid is 325 meters across, and its moon is 70 metres across. Only 16% of near-Earth asteroids that are over 200 metres across have moons, although some have two moons. In 2016, NASA will launch the OSIRIS-REx robot probe to visit asteroid 101955 Bennu, which is considered a little too close to Earth for comfort. OSIRIS-REx stands for Origins, Spectral, Interpretation, Resource, Identification, and Security Regolith Explorer. Just trips off the tongue, and just happens to spell out the name of an ancient Egyptian god. No, not a stretched acronym at all. The OSIRIS-REx 14-year mission will visit Bennu, the carbon-rich asteroid that's old enough to record the earliest history of the solar system 4 billion years ago, and bring a piece back to Earth. It's thought that asteroids like Bennu rained down carbon compounds onto Earth's oceans that later became the building blocks that evolved into life. Bennu is also thought to have a good chance of hitting the Earth late next century. NASA plans to learn enough from OSIRIS-REx to start planning a future mission to make that much less of a really bad thing. Bennu is also of the class of asteroids that hold water and precious metals, as well as carbon compounds, so NASA wants to learn to mine them to fuel future exploration, hopefully after saving the world. The next big rock expected to come close enough to the Earth for a good look is asteroid 199AN10, which flies by in 2027. Look to www.diffusionradio.com for an animated radar picture from NASA of asteroid 2004BL86 with its little moon. Invisible planets? Two more planets for our solar system? Astronomers reopen a controversy thought long dead by examining the movement of dwarf planets at the edge of the solar system. 
1905, when Percival Lowell predicted the existence of a planet seven times the mass of Earth, out beyond Neptune, he dubbed it Planet X. He observed Neptune's predicted and actual movements and used the discrepancy as the basis of his prediction that it must be influenced by another planet's gravitational pull. There must be another planet. He founded the Lowell Observatory, but died without finding Planet X. At the Lowell Observatory, Clyde Tombaugh took photographs of the sky and switched between them quickly to be able to see the movement of a planet against the stars, using the blink comparison technique. He discovered a body 10 times less massive than Planet X, 6 degrees away from where Lowell predicted, but the announcement went out that it was the planet Lowell had sought. Lowell's success made a good story. The name Pluto was suggested by 11-year-old Venetia Burney from Oxford, after Lowell's widow suggested the planet be named Percival after Lowell, or even Constance after herself. Venetia felt that the planet, being far from the sun in its own dark world, should be named after the Greek god of the underworld, Pluto. Her grandfather was a retired Oxford University librarian who told a friend who was a professor of astronomy who thought the name was inspired. He took it to the Royal Society, who couldn't think of anything better, and suggested it to the Lowell Observatory, who liked the idea that its astronomical symbol would be PL, Percival Lowell's initials. By the end of May 1930, the official name for the dwarf planet was Pluto, although at the time they counted it a planet. Venetia's great-uncle Henry Mardan had named the moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos 52 years earlier in 1878. So astronomical naming runs in the family. On a side note, Venetia was vexed later in life by historians claiming that she named the dwarf planet after the Disney cartoon dog Pluto. Disney's cartoon dog did first appear in 1930, but he was named Rover until 1931 a year after Venetia named the planet Pluto. Venetia lived long enough for that point to be settled in her favour, but died three years after Pluto was reclassified a dwarf planet. Despite many history books giving credit to Lowell's prediction, Pluto is way too small to be his planet X. So, is planet X still out there? Or was Lowell wrong? In 1995, Miles Standish from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory recalculated all of the orbits of all of the planets. And he found there was no reason to expect there to be any more planets past Neptune. It was only by luck and accident that Pluto was discovered at all. No planet X. Lowell was wrong, or at least only a bit right, for the wrong reasons. Now in 2015, planet X is back. And there might also be a planet Y. A team of astronomers from the Complutense University of Madrid in Spain and the University of Cambridge in the UK studied the orbits of 13 extreme trans-Neptunian objects at the extreme edge of the solar system. They were not moving as predicted, which means that something else was affecting their movements. They calculate that there are at least two more planets, each at least as large as the Earth these planets would be orbiting 200 times as far from the Sun as the Earth. Not more dwarf planets, big planets, at 200 astronomical units from the Sun, where an astronomical unit 
is the distance from the Sun to the Earth. Yes, even in astronomy, we still have units of measurement based on us. The problem is that traditional understanding of how planetary systems form rule out anything as far away from the Sun as these predicted planets. Planetary formation is supposed to stop at 100 astronomical units. The astronomy team acknowledge the distance problem, but cite new evidence that planets can form so far away from their suns. In 2014, astronomers at the new Atacama Large Millimeter Array of Telescopes in Chile found a planet-forming disk more than 100 astronomical units from a star called HL Tauri. The confirmed presence of this planetary disk, more than 100 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, strongly suggests that planets could form as far out as 200 astronomical units. The challenge for the British and Spanish astronomers now is to find these two big planets when none of our instruments can see anything that far away that doesn't produce its own light. For now, they'll have to continue to look for the gravitational influence of invisible planets. Maybe once again, Lowell will be right for the wrong reason. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And this week we welcome back Kerry Doherty, who is formerly Curator of Space Technology at the Powerhouse Museum and also a lecturer with the International Space University. I met her in the noisy Powerhouse Museum coffee shop to talk about the early history of rockets in Australia. This week, Kerry explained the beginnings of the Woomera Rocket Range. Last time we were talking about the pre-World War II history of um, male rocketeering in Australia, but what most people think of in terms of space and Australia is the Woomera Rocket Range. And uh, Woomera, of course, is post-World War II, and it has its origins in the fact that, uh, of course, in the latter part of the Second World War, Britain was um, one of the countries bombarded by the V-2 rocket developed in Germany. And like many other nations at the end of the war, um, they realised that uh, missiles were going to be one of the ways in which warfare in the future would be fought, particularly um, missiles with atomic warheads. So. Uh, more or less as the war was ending, Britain was already deciding that it would need to develop for itself um, both short-range and long-range missiles to be part of the nuclear deterrent in the uh, the Cold War that was growing even as the Second World War ended. Um, and initially Britain was looking at um, developing two types of longer-range missiles. One that was roughly a V2 equivalent that uh, they were going to call Hammer, and another one which would be an early version of uh, an intermediate-range ballistic missile with a roughly 3,000-mile range that they called Menace. Now, of course, to develop rockets with that kind of range, you need somewhere to test them. And in the UK, there aren't a lot of places where you can fire a rocket two or three hundred uh, miles or three thousand miles without 
running into somebody else's territory. So they realised that they would have to find a test range in some other part of the, uh, the British Empire, which of course at this point was starting to become the, uh, the British Commonwealth. So they looked at several options and essentially it boiled down to two possibilities. Either northern Canada, where you had a, a large stretch of country that was sparsely inhabited, or Australia, which again had a large stretch of country in the interior and up towards the northwest that was sparsely inhabited and therefore could be used as a place to test long-range missiles. The advantage for uh, in choosing Australia, or the main reason they ultimately chose Australia, was that um, they wanted to be able to recover, obviously, pieces of the missiles after they'd flown the length of their flight or if something went wrong and they blew up along the way. They wanted to be able to recover the pieces and find out what went wrong. Because in this early period to telemetry, that is being able to radio data back from the rocket to the ground, was itself still in its infancy. So that they were sort of thinking in terms that they were going to have to recover pieces of anything that went wrong to find out what the problem was. But in Canada, the northern reaches of Canada that they were looking at, of course, are snow-covered for large amounts of the year, which meant that they wouldn't, they'd only be usable for relatively short periods of time. And, you know, if you wanted to fire it during the winter months, you'd never be able to find or would have much more difficulty finding and recovering downed missile pieces. Whereas in Australia, although it can get very hot, of course, out in the, the desert regions, it's going to be much easier to uh, find and recover any material from a, a crashed uh, missile. So that was the basic reason for choosing Australia. In addition, at the Australian end, remembering this is just immediately after the war, the uh, Chifley government, Chifley Labor government was in power at the time, and they were very focused on building up Australia's industrial capacity. I mean, World War II was a big shock to Australia in the sense that suddenly we were cut off by the war in Europe and the Japanese from having access to both Europe and the United States where all our technology essentially came from. And we only had a very, very small manufacturing base at that time. So it was, you know, it had been sort of forcibly brought home to Australia that we needed to have more manufacturing base, uh, you know, more capacity to defend and support ourselves in the event of a future conflict. So the Chifley government, as I say, embarked on this, what they called this, this process of industrialisation. And they saw what came to be called Woomera being established in Australia as a way to get technology transfer into Australia. So, you know, rocketry, missile development was right at the cutting edge of technologies at that time. And so they, they saw Australia being involved in a British rocket testing facility as a way of getting technology transfer of leading edge technologies and helping to build up an industrial base here in Australia. In deciding to accept the establishment of Woomera in Australia, it actually meant that uh, for the first time, Australia would have a, a defence science industry, a real defence science industry. And what we had had up to that point was a very, very small, very small amount of research and development, mainly focused on um, munitions. And uh, so the whole Australian defence scientific establishment was 
revamped and, and created so that what came to be called the Weapons Research Establishment that many people would remember the name from the 60s and 70s and more recently today is called DSTO, Defence Science and Technology Organisation, had its origins in the plans to establish Woomera in Australia. Um, and again, this, this idea of getting through Australian involvement in Woomera, getting transfer of technologies into Australia and then into the wider industrial capacity in this country. So that was what was underlying it from the Australian side. There were expeditions from Britain that came out to Australia to survey areas in the northwest or the northern part of South Australia and Western Australia and the Northern Territory looking for a suitable position. And uh, ultimately they picked on the area that we now know as, as Woomera. Initially, when a name was given to the area, Woomera was only going to be the name of the township. In fact, they actually considered a number of different names for the township. Another one was almost, it was almost going to be Mirabuka, which of course is one of the Aboriginal names for the Southern Cross. Ultimately, they went with Woomera, which of course we know is the, the spear thrower, which of course is a particularly appropriate term. What's rather sad in a way though is that Woomera is a term from Eastern Australian Aboriginal cultures whereas the local Aboriginal people in that area who were unfortunately forcibly displaced for the establishment of Woomera their word was uh, Miru. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So not only were the local Indigenous people moved out of the area, how shall I say, their own word for the tool in question was culturally usurped by uh, using a, uh, an East Coast term. But of course that's the term that generally in Australia we know for that particular spear thrower. But it is a suitably appropriate metaphorical name for the area. As I said, originally it was going to be the township that was just called Woomera, but ultimately the name kind of devolved onto the entire facility and it became known as the, the Woomera Rocket Range. And, you know, most people who are old enough to remember it will always remember it being called Woomera Rocket Range. Actually, something that is interesting, uh, and just a little bit of a curious coincidence, when uh, Jonathan Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels, he gave a, a latitude and longitude for where Lilliput would be found. And if you actually plot it on a map, Lilliput turns out to be very close to where the Woomera Township is now. <laughs> so Lilliput obviously was not an island at all. <laughs> It was actually Australia, <laughs> but I just you know it's just a curious, curious little coincidence. So Woomera, as I say, there there was uh, some early expeditions deciding on where to locate the Woomera rocket range, or what became Woomera, and ultimately a, a spot was chosen for the range head and for the nearby township. So that in 1946, the first planning began on the establishment of Woomera. Woomera's official birthday is April the 1st, 1947. That's taken as the establishment date. But of course, at that time, there was still pretty much nothing at the location. They had to bring in, you know, large numbers of workers. There was a workers' camp established. And then these workers built both the town and the, uh, the early range facilities. The first testing that was done at Woomera, as a matter of fact, wasn't missile testing. It was uh, bomb testing. And we're talking here conventional, conventional bombs, not uh, not nuclear 
a little bit early for nuclear weapons at this point. But, yeah, so in, in the late, late 1947, 48, they started doing some of these, what they call bomb ballistics tests. And then in 1949, the first early missile tests began. The missile work that was done at Woomera, in, especially in the first sort of decade, was very much focused on Britain's requirements. And even though, you know, they had those early plans for Hammer and Menace, they were actually dropped fairly quickly for various reasons that Britain realised they didn't have either the funding or the capability at that point to develop those particular kinds of weapons. But they did want to develop a number of shorter range, surface-to-air, surface-to-surface, sea-to-surface or sea-to-air missiles. And so the work that was done at Woomera over that sort of first decade or so was very much focused on the development of these kinds of weapons. There was no space work or what we would consider space work done at Woomera until the end of 1957-1958. And we'll talk about that next time. But another thing I wanted to mention in regard to the early development at Woomera, some people of course think Woomera and they think nuclear weapons. Now in fact there were two separate agreements that Australia had with the United Kingdom, one of which was referred to as the Anglo-Australian Joint Project and that's the the administrative agreement that ran Woomera, the rocket range, for missile testing. There was actually a separate agreement involved in the, uh, the nuclear testing. Now some of the very earliest nuclear tests were carried out at a place called Emu Claypan, which was inside the Woomera prohibited area, but the other tests were conducted at either the Maralinga Range or the uh, Montebello Islands, and these were of course separate from the, uh, the Woomera development or from the Woomera facility. So the atomic bomb development work was actually conducted separately from the missile work. I'd just like to sort of clarify that for people because most people have it in their minds that it was all one, one thing and in fact they were conducted as two quite separate programs. Woomera did, or the Weapons Research Establishment which managed Woomera, did provide logistics support for the programs, particularly at Maralinga, but they say they're actually conducted separately. Another thing which is interesting about Woomera is how quickly it passed into science fiction. In Australia we knew that Woomera was going to be developed quite early on. There were, there were references in the papers to, you know, this, this uh, I have a lovely headline that I've seen in, I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald, 5,000 mile per hour rocket post to be established in Australia. So there was a lot of excitement in Australia at the idea of being involved in what was seen at that time as, as cutting edge and of course considered to be fairly important in terms of Cold War defence. But in Britain there were actually, uh, there was a lot more security clamped down so that it, public knowledge about Woomera was not as widespread and yet it very quickly was picked up by science fiction writers. And so Woomera begins to appear quite early on as a, as a launch facility, a space launch facility in the science fiction of writers like Arthur C. Clarke. And in fact, Clarke is the earliest writer that I know of to actually write a story where a space mission is launched from Woomera. And he actually wrote a story called Prelude to Space. He wrote it in 1947, although it wasn't published until about 1950 or 51. So he actually wrote it at a time when knowledge of Woomera was really, really 
knew about a mission to the moon, the first mission to the moon lifting off from Woomera. Don't we wish that had happened? <laughs> and there was a lot of British science fiction and Australian science fiction from that point forward that actually envisaged Woomera not just as a, a missile testing range, but as a space launch facility. You know, and, and a lot of writers who proposed that first mission to the moon or the first mission to Mars would actually be launched from Australia on the assumption, of course, that the, the uh, British Commonwealth would, you know, develop its own space program and, of course, be up there with the leaders in space exploration. So it's interesting that so early Woomera was envisaged as a spaceport 10 years before any kind of space launch actually took place there. Look, next time we'll talk about some of the very earliest space-related launches that took place at Woomera, the sounding rocket programs, which were the forerunners of the space launch vehicle programs in the 1960s. Kerry Doherty, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. That was Kerry Doherty talking about the history of the Woomera rocket range. Kerry will present more stories about the history of space in Australia in shows to come. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karengai, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links and photos about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.